1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
2: All right, and a very good morning. It's, uh oh, golly, it's just going to be on, and yeah, we're just a few days away from the 1st of September. Traditionally, as we start moving into a little bit more fall-like weather, we're still going to be plenty hot, uh, still plenty humid out there. The heat index is... uh or what do they call it, the dew point, says we're still not into a real comfortable temperature range, but at least we seem to have gotten away from those a hundred plus degree days. So every morning is just I just reminds you the fall's not too far away. Reminds you of all the things you need to do out in the yard and out in the vegetable garden and just it's just a nice time of year, what can I say? Lots of things to talk about this morning, and of course, uh most important thing is what is on your mind and Clint got up early this morning, so let's start there. Good morning, Clint. Good morning how are you doing uh, I'm off to a good start. I hope you are too. Oh, getting there, getting there. Kind of wondering what is what time of the year is the best time to trim back roses. That's a great question. Uh, Two times a year on bush roses. Now, this does not apply to climbing roses. Climbing roses, we wait and cut them back after they bloom in the spring because your climbers are going to bloom on the wood that's already there. And if you prune climbers in the fall, you're just sacrificing your spring's flowers. But bush roses, we typically prune twice a year. We give them a heavy pruning, probably by two-thirds around valentine's day and then we give a light pruning cut them back by about a third around labor day so you're just coming right up on the perfect time to give them their fall haircut fertilize them when you do that and uh you should get a good crop of beautiful roses this fall and when was that time to do the uh, climbing roses climbing roses is after they bloom in the spring and you're a guy that likes to understand the whys of things so (laughs) the reason is very simple Bush roses bloom on new growth. You cut your bush roses back now, they put on new growth and bloom. Climbing roses bloom on old growth. Uh, there The wood is already grown. The buds are already in a form that you can't even see called bud primordia for next spring's flowering on climbers because they bloom on old wood. So we have to let them bloom. We could cut them back now. It wouldn't hurt the plants, but you'd be sacrificing all your spring flowers. So let them bloom in the spring and then do your cutting back on those. Okay, good deal. And now on coastal, well, uh,
3: Saint Augustine ch- choke out coastal. Well, what now?
2: Uh, Saint Augustine. Well, that. Choke oh, Saint Augustine. Out, uh, yeah. World coastal. Yeah, yeah. Saint Augustine will ch- choke out coastal. Coastal has to grow high to be happy. And with Saint Augustine, you're going to mow the coastal down, which is going to set it back, and then the Saint Augustine is going to choke it out completely. Okay. Now, what about coastal choking out regular Bermuda in our field? If you allow the coastal to grow up, you know, coastal wants to grow a foot tall, and your uh, common Bermuda doesn't want to get that tall. So if you let your coastal grow tall, it will, in effect, shut the light off, which will do away with the common Bermuda. If you're you're grazing your coastal down pretty low or if you're cutting it really regularly to bale, then your common Bermuda's going to hang on because every time you cut your coastal back and the common Bermuda starts getting that light that it needs, then it's going to continue to grow. But if you're able to let your coastal really grow up pretty tall before you cut it, it's going to suppress and ultimately eliminate the common Bermuda.
3: Well, I'm doing something backwards because i got the most beautiful
4: coastal growing along my St. Augustine and patches around it, but uh, <laughs> the common's in my field, so... Other well, than a couple of spots, so I'm hoping it's going to finally start
2: spreading and cook up the other stuff. You just get a little bit of rain on it, give it a little bit of molasses, a little bit of organic fertilizer if you can, because coastal wants to dominate, and if you allow it to grow up and be tall, it will very definitely dominate, but... If you're keeping it keeping it cut down low like you would common Bermuda, and by low I mean three or four inches instead of by eight or ten inches, then uh, there's just gonna be an ongoing battle between the common and the coastal. But if coastal has its way, it'll just shade the common Bermuda out of existence. What about once it gets tall, just leave it leave it tall for a season to really push things along faster. Would that help? I- it won't be real pretty, but it would most definitely, definitely help. And if you leave it there for a whole season, then, you know, when frost comes around and it starts browning out, you can always turn your stock in on it to eat it down. It's not like, you know, Sudan and some of these others, uh, if they get a freeze on them, there's a problem with forming prussic acid in the sap, which can be deadly to uh, sheep and uh, not real good for cows. But that doesn't happen with Bermuda grass. Bermuda grass just turns brown and, you graze it down, and doesn't have quite as much nutrition in it. But coastal's not full of nutrition anyway. So, yeah, if you could leave it long and then take advantage of uh, having that tall grass by by turning your stock in to graze it down uh, after after it starts to brown out in the fall, that'd be the best of both worlds. Uh, it's kind of the game plan because I'm not wanting to use any of those chemicals to kill out anything else out in the field. So, oh, I think you're very wise. And there's nothing that would kill common Bermuda without harming your your coastal and uh, um, a, you know, long term rotational grazing is the best answer because that, um, th- that supports the land, that supports uh, your grasses, and uh, you've, you've got enough land that I'm sure you could do it effectively, but uh, that that's a whole nother story. Acres USA has uh, you know, has books on that, but man, it's a it's a practice that really works, and it's in effect its own form of regenerative agriculture, which we all ought to be paying more attention to. So, uh, all you've got to do is figure out how to make it rain, and then everybody's going to be happy. Rain? What? 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 What's that? I read about it uh, in a book last week, and then actually saw a little bit of it. But uh, uh, hard rain, I'm still not sure what that is. But but gentle rain, I, we actually got to see last week for the first time in a long time. Only got half inch over two days, so it just gave my grass a little perking up and that's about it so far, so <laughs> Well, maybe that next tropical depression that comes in will give you give you an inch and a half or a foot and a half or whatever they usually do. But uh it'll it'll happen. We were about decided that uh we were just in the middle of a donut hole and it was never gonna rain on, you know, my property again and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, my neighbors didn't get anything, but I got one point seven and Last week, my business partner got, uh, oh, gosh, I think about an inch and a half on her place, even though she missed every rain so far. So just got to get under the right cloud and uh, don't know when, but it it will happen. It always has, and I have a strong belief that it will again. I just wish we had a little bit more influence over, you know, when we got it and how much we got. Yeah, maybe if I can perfect my rain dance, I guess. You get it figured out, you can teach classes, and we'll all, take, we'll all pay you for that oh good hey did y'all ever start making uh compost tea there uh, we haven't yet in this heat but if anybody wants it you know give us a little notice and uh we can, we've got the stuff we can brew up a batch any time. people people in the city don't realize that you have to get out and work even it's even if it's hot the way us country people do and nobody's doing a whole lot in their yards but you give us a little bit of cooler weather people are going to start getting active in the yards again and I'll, i'm sure we'll be making it every week but uh if you need a few gallons of it, uh, call on about Wednesday or Thursday, and we'll get some brewed up for you. i like the plan. Well, I appreciate your time. Always appreciate your call, Clint. Get out and have a wonderful day, and i uh, look forward to our next visit. You Thank you, time. sir. You too. All right. Uh, let's see here. Looks like we've got uh, Greg up as our next color. Oh, Greg dropped off. Well, then in that case, we'll talk to Patrick. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. Uh, I have a question.
4: Uh, We uh, built two really large uh, flower beds out of those big butter block uh, uh, stones. They're five foot by 18 inches. We double stacked (laughs) them. So we've we've got uh, uh, one of them is 30 foot long by five foot deep, a three foot. And then the other one is 16 by five by three. And, uh, I wanted to uh, fill them with some good soil, but I went down to the Stone and Soil location over here in Bulgurdy. They're not there anymore. It's a new company. So I'm wondering, because uh, it's going to take about 20 yards to fill both of them, Right. and uh, I'm wondering uh, where I might go to find the right kind of, of soil to put
2: in there. Um. <laughs> It's, I, I, Stone and Soil still has bunches of locations. There's one, uh, you know, out near Fair Oaks, out on I-10, almost to Bernie, and that right. might not be too far away, and, um, you know, it's just, uh, and and you obviously have some equipment to, if you can move blocks that big, you've got something you can move soil with. Right, and the nice right. thing about it is, you know, you don't have to settle for a, a six or eight yard dump truck. Uh, and then pay a delivery charge every time they come out. You could actually get them to bring it to you in, uh, you know, in, in a big trailer, probably a twenty-six right. yard trailer or something like that. Right. So right. the freight, sh- the freight should not be a lot different in coming from Boulevard and coming from uh, uh, coming from Fair Oaks. So that's probably, you know, the place I would check now. There's a company um, out on 3351 that's. Uh, Producing a lot of uh, uh, a lot of good compost and I presume pretty good soils, but I'm being told that uh, their prices are about double what everybody else's is. And from what I've seen, their soil's not worth twice the price. But it's called right. Geo Geo Source. I don't know if you've seen or heard of them. They're on I 3350. Actually, yeah, you, you yeah. might you might call and find out what they have and see if they'd work you a deal if you were getting uh, a big quantity of it like that. Otherwise, I would probably either talk to the stone and soil over on uh, I-35 or the stone and soil that's over on I-10, because to the best of my knowledge, they're still making some of the best, and I'd be asking for the garden soil. Uh, I wouldn't you know, go to their highest grade soil, and when you get it, get enough of it that you can mound it up like six inches high in the middle of those beds, because it's going to settle down very quickly. If you... If you fill those beds six inches above the edges, and we got a rain or two, that soil will be down below the edge of the block within six weeks, so rather than have to go haul a bunch more back in, go ahead and overfill them to begin with, and they will settle out pretty quickly
4: okay, and uh so if I use garden soil for that and uh the uh
2: I was going to put compost on top of that, Amen. Is there yep. any particular type you recommend. I would stay away from biosolids compost. I would go with a manure-based compost or a vegetable-based compost. Uh, most likely you're going to find a uh, um, a, a manure-based, but you need to check with the company and make them guarantee that it is picloram-free, because there are some people that still don't understand that cattle that eat hay has been treated with picloram, and a lot of it has. That passes right through the cow into the manure, and it doesn't go away for years. So uh, I would I would go with a good manure-based compost. If you can find a vegetable-based compost, that would be even better. I just don't know where you're going to find it. Uh, there, there are three or four companies around. You're not going to need you know, a whole lot. You probably only need to put an inch, maybe two inches on top of what you've got there. So it might be something you could haul yourself and that's gonna make it possible to uh to go a little bit further to pick it up to get good compost. But um uh there, there, there are there two or three folks. There's uh, one company over toward Casterville's making a uh uh I think a better compost. Um gosh, I can't say the name off the top of my head, but uh and then there's another one in Southwest San Antonio, fairly new on the market, but doing trying real hard to produce a top quality compost so I would I get your garden soil in place, let it settle, uh, put some good organic fertilizer on top of it, and by then maybe we can figure it out what the uh, very best compost source is going to be for you
4: yeah you you mentioned manure uh, and uh, my uh, my neighbor has got horses and of course they they produce quite a bit. And uh, so we should stay away from that, too. What I was going to do is put that at the bottom of these things and, uh, you know, just kind of put some of it down at the bottom of these uh, uh,
2: boxes. But you're well, saying that uh, there, there's a good chance there's some pass-through stuff that you don't want? Ask ask your neighbor, and hopefully they'll be honest with you. Um, and First of all, ask them if they're buying hay or if they are growing their own hay. If they're growing their own hay, they should be able to tell you. The chemical that we want to stay away from is called picloram, P-I-C-L-O-R-A-M. It's sold under names like Grazon and P-plus-D. And the problem with it is there's nothing in nature that breaks it down. It may take 100 years for it to break down. And the horse eats the hay, the picloram comes out of the manure, and then everywhere you put the manure, it kills everything uh, except Uh. grass. Yeah, picloram was developed to be able to spray on a hayfield and kill out all the weeds except the grass. So, uh, unfortunately, I mean, if it were biodegradable, that would be one thing. Uh, like, even the really toxic stuff like 2,4-D, which is broadleaf killer, at least it's biodegradable. That's- it pretty much breaks down completely, but picloram doesn't. It's one of the few substances on Earth that uh nothing breaks it down the only thing you're going to get it diluted down with time but uh it's put and especially in california it put a bunch of compost companies totally out of business uh there are two or three of them really suffered around this area and i know people who literally had to scoop all the soil out of their garden and replace it because uh um uh, it's just so terribly discouraging and uh uh there's like i say there's just nothing to counteract it you can do some things with charcoal you can do some things right. with uh, garret juice that will mitigate it a little bit but man if that's one problem you can prevent and i would a whole lot rather prevent it than try to solve it if you ever get a load of compost or a load of manure and you're not sure about it uh it's pretty easy to test it i mean you can pay a lab to test it and spend a few hundred dollars. But what you can do is take the hay or take the compost, put it in a, you know, good three to five-gallon ranch bucket, fill it two-thirds with water, and soak it overnight, and then take the liquid and go pour it over, not grass, but pour it over broadleaf weed, uh, could be henbit, could be any of the different spurges, heck, it could be a tomato plant for that reason, clover, any of those things. Watch the weed for two or three days if it starts to get brown edges and starts to shrivel, you know that your material's contaminated. If it continues to grow and flourish like the weeds normally do, then you know that that batch has no pythram in it. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You just got to do a little science project and uh, <laughs> burn a little night oil. All right, yeah, well, now- I appreciate that. I'll uh, uh, now that I know that they're over there. Uh, this new company that come came in, I I made the mistake of. Uh, Uh, Trying one of those companies one time, and basically it was
2: uh, bio uh, material, and uh, my plants just did terrible. I mean, it was. It's it's a lot better to make a mistake with uh, a couple of wheelbarrows full than it is to make with twenty yards. So you're you're a smart man to to, do. Investigate very carefully before you pull the trigger on that one. It sounds like you can have a beautiful area. I I envy you the ability to quarry and move rocks that size. That's uh, that's just a wonderful thing that you're able to do. That so take some pictures well, before well, and the, after.
4: The 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 best the best way that. Uh, uh, I, I quarried those rocks and stand them up, so I hired somebody to do it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yes, uh, that, that's the best way of all if you've got the budget to do it. Uh, uh, there are certain things, and, man, I love hard work. That's what's kept me going for all these years. But I know when to call somebody else to do it. I know when it gets a little bit beyond me. So I can clear an acre of cedar, but if I've got 20 acres of cedar, I'm going to call the cedar eater. That's for sure
4: yeah i uh i tried to move them with my 52 horse john Deere
2: with the forks on the front and the tractor says i'm not doing this isn't that <laughs> funny so, when you when you pull back the lever to lift and instead the back end of the tractor comes up off the ground <laughs> i see you've been there before <laughs> i've been there done that and uh i've also buried a bobcat uh pretty much up to the hubs i managed to get it out but uh Uh, yeah, it's, we all do, we all do things that we look back and say, you know, that was kind of stupid. I'm not going to make that mistake again, so. It's, uh, it's called life, and uh, uh, the people that pay attention and learn from their mistakes, they're the ones that are going to be successful, the ones like the government that just keep doing the same thing over and over. That, that's what Einstein said was the definition of uh, lunacy or something like that, was doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. But don't get me started on that one. You get out and have a wonderful weekend, and uh, enjoy the visit, Patrick. All right, thanks. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right. Got to get a break in here, and I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Again, when it comes to roofing, I'm not going to do it myself. I've done enough of that, and I'm tired of heights, and I'm tired of uh, not being able to have the equipment that a wonderful company like Southwest Metal Roofing Systems has. If you've ever watched them work, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, they put the roof on my old home up in Bernie, and uh, that was close to 20 years ago. I've never had one single problem. Uh, It was not an easy job, balcony around three sides upstairs and three chimneys to flash around. They did the job quickly, Wonderfully, and I've not had one single problem since then. Put the roof on our shades of green, not a single problem with that roof. Uh, it's just so many people I know have called Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and they all call me back and say thank you and say, you know, their roofs are very reasonably priced. It wasn't that much more than a shingle roof. They give you the best warranty in the industry, and it truly will be the last roof you ever put on your home. And there's quite a choice these days in the color. I chose red for the honor and old family member, but uh, lots of, about 20 different colors. And if you want a roof that doesn't look like standing seam metal, they've got roofs that are made of the same great material, but look exactly like ceramic tile or slate shingles or even shake shingles. It's just a great company with an energy-efficient roof that will save you money on your insurance and your energy bills. I had a good-looking roof. So many reasons to call them. And, by the way, they do new construction, too. If you're building a new home, just tell your builder you want that Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on there. Don't let him tell you that his roof is just as good, because I don't think anybody's as good as Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Give him a call and learn more. 210-822-6868. 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
2: All right, back to gardening. Nice morning out there. I hope the clouds stick around today. That just makes all the difference in uh, getting out and enjoying time outside. Next three callers are going to be Greg, Charles and Harry and Greg is up first. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. Hey. Morning. Uh, Work. Can you
0: Where do you can you
2: buy the nations Creation compost do y'all sell? We sell it. Uh uh no, I don't think anybody has it in bulk. You'd have to go to Houston to get it in bulk. But uh it's uh, uh I know Phoenix carries it, we carry it. Uh several good nurseries around carry it, but uh it's a one and a half cubic foot bag and uh I I I don't believe anybody in San Antonio it's produced over in the Houston area by a big, big company over there. There's been Making good compost for fifty years or something, but uh, I don't think you're going to find it in bulk. Okay, it's just it's pretty costly if you want to do your whole yard and have to get a hundred bags or something. Well, uh, yeah, it depends on how big your yard is. Um, the one thing you can do, and of course, putting down compost is is by far the best thing you can do. But you can always use a good compost like theirs to uh, make some either compost tea or compost leachate. And that way it takes a small amount of, uh, of of compost to make a big volume of liquid, which will certainly help your yard. But it's still going to be best if you could, you know, put a quarter inch to a half inch on it. Nothing says you have to do it all at once. You know, you can do it as the budget in the back allow and uh, do one area. We just we can do it really from probably the 1st of October all the way up until probably the 1st of May. We just have to be sure those daytime temperatures are down out of the 90s. So um, if you if you want to go with a top-quality product like that, the thing to do is just, you know, don't buy 100 bags at once. Buy 5 bags a week, 10 bags a week, and uh, it's a whole lot easier on the back when you're spreading it yourself, too. And uh, first thing you know, it'll all be done.
0: What uh, well, uh, as far as bulk goes, do you have a place that you think is one of the better spots, kind of out in the New Braunfels area?
2: Hi, it's the quality seems to come and go. Back when Jeff Knight owned Stone and Soil, I could talk to Jeff, and and they kept their quality really, really high. The company sold, and I have to say that. Uh, Uh, It's just, it's been inconsistent. I would go out and take a close look at it, but there's a stone soil location on I-35, pretty close to you out there. And uh, I go take a good close look at it. I'd be absolutely certain that it doesn't contain biosolids. I might take a bucket of it home with me to do a picloram test to just be on the safe side. But uh, in your part of the world, that's... um, that's probably the best I can suggest. Now, if you go over toward Gonzales, where they've got all the big turkey farms, there's some places over there that uh, that you can get a good turkey compost. Uh, there's also some good mushroom compost available out there. So, uh for straight manure compost I'm still going to give stone and soil a chance but uh again if you've got a way to haul it and you want to go as far as Gonzales you can you can find some quality product that doesn't have large animal manures in it and that way you're you know you're not getting biosolids and you know you're not getting any contamination
0: well there's a a uh, nursery over here you I'm sure you know about but
2: it, it, apparently their compost is all vegetables. There's no animal manure in it. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the compost that Mother Nature makes is about 90% vegetable and maybe 10% uh, from manures and things like that. But uh, I I would not hesitate to... Uh, Uh, to use a vegetable compost. It's going to be some of the cleanest material you'll ever find. And there's not, even on the manure-based one, there's not enough nitrogen in there to really give it much fertilizer quality. If they're making it out of uh, vegetables, if they're making it out, they usually will probably have some alfalfa or something like that in there. You're going to get as much nutrition out of that as you would a manure-based compost. So If it's a good price and if it's a good consistency, I'd have no problem. In fact, I'd choose that over most of the manure composts that are out there on the market right now. best compost is still what comes out of your own compost pile, but very few of us have a big enough compost pile to do the whole yard. Okay, well, I appreciate it. Thanks. Let me know what you decide, and let me know what your results are. I always like to hear back. I will. Thank you. Appreciate it, Greg. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. I got a little behind on that last stop set, so let me go ahead and get a break in here so we don't get uh, way behind and gives me the privilege of talking about Wild Birds Unlimited. I just love talking about a company that I do business with on a regular basis. In fact, When gift-giving time comes around, most of my friends, ladies and gentlemen, are good outdoors people, and my first stop looking for gifts is usually Wild Birds Unlimited because Kyle and his staff, they just always have something different and interesting out there, not only nature-related, but just attractive things for the yard. You see, Wild Birds Unlimited, all Wild Birds Unlimited stores carry the same great Wild Birds Unlimited products, but each store shops individually for their extra things, their gift merchandise and the really special things, things like the great optics that they carry out at uh, Albert wild birds unlimited you just need to go see them to truly appreciate it it's not a huge store but boy you walk through that door you will be amazed at what all they have what all they have in there and it's not just food for the birds they've got a great selection of small fountains of bird baths it's just a fun store to visit and the knowledge that kyle and his staff have you're not going to find that anywhere else that i know of and of course when it comes down to the feeders and the feed nobody has better most of their feeders carry a lifetime guarantee uh, their hummingbird feeders have a built-in ant stopper. And their feed, well, they know that birds like different blends in the summer and winter. You're just always going to get what's timely and what's best for the beautiful creatures in your yard. Find out what I'm talking about. Go see them. They're out in the shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner Road, kind of on the side that faces Northwest Military. Give them a call. Uh, see what I, I know hours change periodically, and I'm not sure exactly what their hours are now, but they give you a lot of opportunities to shop. The number is 479-BIRD. That's very easy to remember. 210-479-BIRD. Make that trip out and see our friends at Wild Birds Unlimited.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
2: All right, back to gardening. Looks like my next three callers are Priscilla, Carol, and Paul. Priscilla is up first. Good morning.
5: Uh, Bob.
2: Yes, ma'am. There? I'm right yeah. here.
5: Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I think that we got some of some hay with some pesticide in it. Uh huh. Our plants were just not wanting to grow. Seeds were not coming up at all so uh we you know i did that test uh that you mentioned and we put it on some of that weed that has those little tiny yellow flowers
2: right or sir, or, or uh straggler yes. Daisy? yes ma'am
5: yes and it just turned yellow do you think that that it does have some of that
2: I would say that the chances are pretty good that it does now this this summer has been so severe there uh, just the heat alone is a reason that lots of seeds haven't sprouted like they normally would that plants just haven't simply haven't grown um, the way that we would hope that they would uh, is this uh have you, you you think that this is already in your soil you've already got a problem with yeah. it in your garden?
5: Yes, we put the hay in our garden, our vegetables, our fruit trees, <laughs> just everywhere. And well, um, my fig tree just—I ha- I put it in last year in March, and it—it it started growing then. And we put some of that hay on there, and it just hasn't grown anymore. It didn't produce any figs this year at all.
2: Are the leaves at all burned on the edges, or are they just not growing?
5: On the fig uh, yes. they're, uh, they're burnt on the edges, but it's not put in any more branches or mm. and you know, it just looks puny.
2: What I would start, because it's it's just tough. It's just hard to get rid of once you've got it there. Uh, Very fine charcoal does a bit to try to mitigate it. Uh, Howard Garrett's uh, invention that he calls Garrett Juice uh, does a, you know, will start working against it. uh, In some cases, kind of ties it up to where it, it causes less of a problem. I don't think I'd make any... I'd, I wouldn't do anything super, super, super major until this fall. I would see how things do when the weather cools off a little bit because this summer has just been brutal on things, and right. I'm seeing things that I, I know haven't had an herbicide problem that are simply not doing real well. So I would... Uh, you might go somewhere, um, you want to look for something they call activated charcoal, and I don't know exactly where to tell you to find it. There are some companies now that are bringing it in. A friend uh, brought me a couple of bags to experiment with, uh, but uh, call around and see if you can find what they call Biochar, B-I-O-C-H-A-R, because that you can get the other place to get it. If it was a tiny little area, I'd tell you to go to an aquarium shop and buy the activated charcoal they sell, but they charge a fortune for it. But um, call, and you might even look online and see where you can find biochar. I would get a fairly fine grade of it. It's very very lightweight, so even if you had to have pay to have some shipped to you, uh, it would be wouldn't be like shipping auto parts or something like that. So I would be okay. looking for some biochar. I would spray the entire area down with uh garret juice. I'd probably wait a couple of weeks and do it a second time. And let's see what the plants look like uh after we get after we get a little bit of cooler weather and hopefully a little bit more rain, and then we can plan our next steps uh at that point, Priscilla. That's that's what I would do if it were my yard.
5: Okay, well we you know what my daughter wanted she she had some of that actomite or something like yeah, that. Yeah, azomite, A- azomite, uh-huh. Azomite, yes, and with some kelp, mm-hmm. some kind of kelp. Yeah. And she put it on the garden. And, oh, that's, uh, those,
2: those are wonderful products. Those are both okay. excellent products. They don't really mitigate the effect of the herbicide unfortunately but that's some one of the best things you can do to to grow good plants
5: so can i go ahead and put that bottle shark. Uh, oh yeah yeah it.
2: it's it's okay. not going to okay. interact with any of the good stuff out there it basically absorbs waste uh and it absorbs a lot of different kinds of toxic materials and uh it's simply the best thing we've got out there right now and it's certainly not going to hurt anything. It's going to do. It's going to do many good things, and uh, hopefully, it will help with mitigating the effect if this is indeed, uh, you know, the Picloram product. But uh, you're never going to go wrong with azomite or good kelp meal either way. Both of those are wonderful products for the garden and the yard and the flower beds and everything else that grows. <laughs>
5: <laughs> uh, she bought one of those big round bales, mm-hmm. and so what should
2: we do with that i mean, uh, I mean I don't take it you know, back <laughs> yeah i would uh i i would get it off of my property you know one way or another i mean if it has That's to go what
5: i told her yeah
2: yeah i'd i'd yeah. um if you're in an area where the city comes by and picks up yard waste periodically I put some plastic underneath that so it doesn't leach down into the soil, and I put it out on the curb and let the city bring that big truck by and haul it off to the landfill.
5: Oh, my goodness. Okay.
2: (laughs) You keep me posted, Priscilla. Well, I'm I'm happy to be here for you. I wish I had a better solution, but I'll talk to Howard Garrett about it next week and see if he's come up with anything in additional because he has several people researching it, but I think that's what he would tell you, and I'll sure keep up with it for you. So get out and have a good weekend, and I thank you for the call this morning.
5: Thank thank you. Certainly. Bye-bye.
2: Goodbye. All right. At this point, I get to tell you about something that's all good, and that's the range of products from our friends at Medina Agriculture. Medina, they've got a lot of things that help with mitigating problems. Uh, they don't produce biochar, but they do produce dry humates and li- liquid humates, both, which really work to boost up the microbial activity and even poor soils and damaged soils. And of course, Medina, they, oh gosh, they make so many fine fertilizers, liquid products like the Hastagroves and the uh, and the new liquid fish formulation, the dry formulas like the Growing Green, and can have a new one out for you pretty soon, too. Uh, of course, all of them totally natural products. That's just what Medina's been doing for 55 years. Their products are used worldwide, but I kind of think they work best right here at home where they were developed. And uh, whether it's fertilizers, whether it's the soil activators to soften your soil, whether it's the products to Oh, gosh. Orange oil, for instance, they package the best, best cleaner in the world, also great for many different uses out in the garden. Uh, you can <laughs> you you can use their wonderful liquid uh, seaweed to help control and prevent spider mites and produce put so many good micronutrients out there. If it says Medina on the bottle or on the bag, you know there's quality inside. And if you want to see a full list of their products, just go to medinaag.com. Great company, been right here for 55 years, making some of the finest natural products you will find anywhere. Medina Agriculture.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
2: All right. Back to the phone lines. It's going to be uh, Carol and Paul and Dan. Carol is next. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm off to a good start. It's gonna be a nice it's a day, but
6: day out today.
2: yeah, it's gonna get warm again and pretty humid, but you know, it's better than it was in July. So uh, we're getting close to September and I'm looking forward to that.
6: I've got a couple of questions for you. I have a twenty year plus old Christmas cacti.
2: Good, very well.
6: One side well it's full of life, but one side looks droopy, almost wilted, even though I fertilize and water it, and it's very woody. Mm-hmm. What do I need to do with it? Um,
2: I, would, I, I would give it something like Super Thrive, you know, very definitely. Uh, Christmas okay. cacti are plants that, believe it or not, the two problems that I see most commonly are getting too dry and uh, getting not quite as much light. Now, if you've had it for 20 years, you obviously know... You know, know how to take care of a Christmas cactus, but when they get that big, when they get that root bound, they're going to be drying out about ten times as fast as they used to, and uh, okay. they're they're not desert cacti. They do not ever want to get totally bone dry, and right. when I see them go into that kind of shriveled, kind of droopy, kind of look not so good phase, it most common cause is getting too dry. Now, Super Thrive will help them overcome. Uh, that damage to the root system and help them recover. But I don't think it's insect. They don't really get many diseases. So, um, And and do check, is it is it in a hanging basket? Or is it in a pot? What kind of container is it growing in? It's in a clay pot. Okay. Um, I would tip it over on the side and make certain that that hole in the bottom hasn't gotten plugged up. Because sometimes over time, uh, you know, you can get just kind of a plug of roots or something covering that hole. And you get exactly the same conditions from too much water as you get from too little. So I would very carefully tip it up, maybe even get a friend to help you. And then take a screwdriver or something like that and just kind of jam it up through the bottom and work it around a little bit just to be sure that the water is draining through effectively. Beyond that, little Super Thrive, uh, regular watering and plenty of bright light, I would expect that it would fully recover.
6: Great. Okay. Another question I have is that I have a wax leaf Hoya Mm -hmm. in my greenhouse Mm -hmm. and... It's in a hanging basket. Okay. And I left it there over the summer and kept the fan going because Uh of the heat, obviously. Right. But it's become so huge and (laughs) it's coiled and wrapped around everything that's in Uh there. And I don't guess I know what to do with it now that it's gotten this big.
2: I would, I would enjoy it, would be the main thing to do. Um, you can always cut
6: it up and repot it or anything.
2: I wouldn't cut it up. If you want to cut it back, you can take some cuttings off of it. You can reduce the size. I just, I when you have that, that's a magnificent specimen. There are probably not a half dozen people in San Antonio that have a hoya that's that big and beautiful. And when they get Uh that big, especially when they get root bound, they typically start blooming fairly profusely. Have yours bloomed for you? Has this one bloomed for you?
6: They bloomed all all through the summer and winter.
2: Well being that big is not a problem to the Hoya. It's only a problem to you if it's yeah, in the way, yeah. Carol. So I, I would tend to let it stay where it is. It's obviously extremely happy there. And if you need to trim it back to make it a little bit more manageable, you can certainly do so. But uh that's that's a plant that's earned you bragging rights. I I just probably wouldn't I wouldn't mess with success if it's that that big, growing that vigorously. Blooming well for you. Uh, you've obviously mastered it. I just think you need to get about 10 other varieties of Hoyas and see if you can grow I them would, all that well. I
6: would love to have all of those. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> but it's it's growing It's the highest point in my greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And its tendrils have now started twining towards my hanging grow lights. And they're <laughs> curled all around the chains. And the hanging rods that i have them on and i yep. was concerned about whether it needed new soil because it's got no. to be close to 30 years old
2: yeah it's it's obviously a very happy plant it's very happy with the care you're giving it uh one of the biggest mistakes that people make is thinking that being bound hurts a plant a lot of people run repot way too often they do more damage than good when they do that and uh, your your plant's giving you all the answers you need. Your plant is vigorous. It's not showing a single sign of a problem. All it's doing is saying, I love you. Keep on giving me what you're giving me. So right. if you need to uncoil some of it, and sometimes you just have to carefully get up on the ladder and unwind some of those vines and redirect them. And if you need to do a little bit of pruning on it, you can. You can't really divide a hoya. It doesn't make additional plants. But uh, you can root the cuttings. They're slow to root. It's going to, you know, you, you take your cuttings. It'll be probably several months before they're well-rooted, and we can get another time okay. talk about exactly how to do that if you choose to do that. Or yeah, It's really simple. Just, uh, you know, keep up with which end is up. You can take a long vine and probably make half a dozen cuttings out of it. Root them in perlite. Soak them in a little garret juice for 20, 30 minutes. Had a little extra seaweed and soak them for 20, 30 minutes. Put your cuttings in the perlite, keep them bright, keep them moist. Eighty percent of them will root and form new plants. And uh, you can give them to your friends and uh, you just tell them that it, they're, it's, uh, they're they're just babies from your monster plant and see if they can even come close to growing one as well as you have. But, Carol, <laughs> I, I wouldn't mess with success. That That's a specimen plant to be proud of. And uh, just whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. And if you need to prune on it, it's not going to hurt it. If you need to spend some time redirecting the growth.
6: Yeah. That was my question. Is it going to kill it if I cut on it?
2: No, it's not going to kill it, but uh, it won't be quite as pretty. But if you need to take some cuttings from it, just uh, um, have after it falls a good time to do it. October would be a very good month to take some cuttings. But don't overdo it because uh, you've grown a beautiful plant. If you cut it back too much, you're definitely going to reduce the flowering. And uh, above all, take some pictures, share with your friends. You've done a really good job. That's quite an accomplishment to grow Hawaii that big and that well.
6: Well, thank you. Have you ever heard of a crested crown cacti?
2: Well, many of the, uh, they're actually euphorbis rather than uh, cacti, form a crustate form. I'll get Don to put you on hold. We can talk
1: a little bit more about that in just a minute. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
2: All right. Back to gardening. We're going to talk a minute more with Carol, and then we'll move on to Paul and Dan. But, um, Carol, you were asking about the crested forms. It's a real interesting thing that euphorbias do. Now, a lot of people lo- will look at some of the desert euphorbias and think they're cacti because they're uh, euphorbias are sort of the old world equivalent of the cacti that we have in the new world. So a lot of them look like cactus. But they do this odd thing every now and then, and I don't think anybody really fully understands it. But rather than... Doing their regular upright growth, they form what they call a cristate or a crested form. And this goes everything from the Euphorbia lactea uh, to even crown of thorns and a whole lot of different ones. And it's just sort of an aberration. It's not a problem. But uh, then, if you then propagate this crested form, uh, it stays crested. And there are some wonderful specimens out wow. there. They even graph sometimes. They will graph the crested form onto another one that's more straight up in growth and uh you you might you might just uh if you're online sometime, just Google crested euphorbia or cristate, C-R-I-S-T-A-T-E, I believe it's uh how it's spelled, and uh, uh, you'll see that. The the euphorbias are easy to grow. You grow them pretty much like cacti, except they can't take freezing weather, but I'm almost certain that's what you're talking about. Uh, They're available, and they're fascinating.
6: Well, I gave a little bitty mini one to my dad when he was alive, and he passed in 95, and I inherited it back. So it's Ah. that old. It, too, is in a clay pot, Mm -hmm. and I've got it sitting on a one of those cinder block things in my greenhouse. Very good. And it's humongous. And I went uh-huh. to the San Antonio Botanical Society to see if they had anything like it in their cacti section, and they did not. And mm-hmm. I thought, my, uh, this this thing is huge.
2: Right. Well, so it, take a picture. Guess- take a yeah I'll take a picture and uh if it's something that you would like somebody else to look after for you i would think i don't know their their current staff as well as i used to they had some you know high up changes and quite frankly i've just been awfully busy in my own business but uh you right. might take a picture down there and uh uh show it around and ask if it's if it's something that you you've just enjoyed it for as many years as you want to enjoy it, and you'd like somebody else to have the responsibility, ask them if this is something they're interested in making a part of their collection.
6: Okay, that sounds wonderful. All right, great. So just water it, fertilize it, keep it where it is, don't repot it.
2: Don't repot it, and, uh, you know, being root-bound. The only time, really, to repot something like that is where if it gets to the point you're having to water it three times a day, yeah, move it to a little bit bigger pot. But plants do not be uh, tropicals and house plants do not mind being root bound. Now trees and shrubs, we can talk about that another time. But uh, I just keep on keeping on, as they would say, and uh, pat yourself on the back. You uh, you you you're quite a gardener from the success you're having with these things. So uh, you I just love keep. Plants i can tell that and uh plants love you and that's the bottom line so get out and have a great weekend you too have a good one thank you so much ah next in line is goodbye paul is up next good morning paul hi
3: good morning uh
2: bob i really appreciate your time and i wanted wonder- to Thank you and your staff for all your efforts and knowledge and well, show. Well, it's our, it's our pleasure. It, it's just uh, it's fun to do. I mean, I wouldn't get up this early on Saturday and Sunday mornings if it weren't for the fun I have here. So uh, I appreciate your call and appreciate your compliments. So I hope I can help you today.
3: Well, I've got uh, tree problems. I've got some real large uh, um, live oaks uh, mm-hmm. that, have got, you know, they've got to be 50, 75, 100 years old. Um, and I just I lost one uh, last year, uh, just just up and died. I have no idea. It was probably maybe uh, a foot and a half in diameter. And uh, what I noticed was, as it was dying, the bark was just falling off right next to the ground. Just you know, we're just having a, 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 a de- deposit of, of uh, dead bark. And and now I've noticed a couple of my big trees again these large old trees, and some of them are starting to get that same thing where they're losing that bark. I mean, they're they're like maybe uh, a third of the surface, and I'm just curious if that means anything to you.
2: Well, it's normal for a tree to constantly produce new bark underneath and shed the old bark off the surface. If the bark is coming off and... Um, it's just smooth wood underneath if it doesn't look like there's any new bark forming then that would to me you know indicate some sort of stress something's really bothering the tree and there there are a number of things it could be of course uh, uh, getting something you know getting the trunk of a tree buried having soil or mulch or anything else piled around the trunk takes years for that to become a problem but ultimately it can kill a tree there are not many diseases that do that. Live oaks certainly get uh, some serious diseases, like oak wilt. Uh, they get a stress-related disease called hypoxylon canker. But um, other than the, you know, the, the, the drought is it's taking its toll on some things. But if these are monstrous mature trees, there has to, would have to be something else uh, happening to get hypoxilin or something like that started. How does the foliage on the trees look? How, how do the leaves, especially the newest leaves on the trees, look?
3: They, it looks fine. Uh, I noticed that uh, they didn't put out, you know, they get the little, uh, I don't know what you call them, the, the new growth up way up at the top right uh, and they, they didn't
2: have as much of that this year as they had in the past. But... <laughs> nothing did <laughs> with <laughs> with you know with and we have fortunately we're getting some rain now but uh the past uh 8 months have been the driest since uh since we started keeping records at 11, uh, 2011 was our single worst one-year drought, and up until it started raining recently, we were behind that rainfall, so nothing put on the kind of growth that, uh, you know, that we typically see from an old live oak like that. Um, it's it's hard to say what killed the one, and, and it died fairly quickly. It didn't just deteriorate over a period of time. It just... Uh, you know it, it just started going downhill in a hurry
3: i i i i hate to say this i you know go i got so many of them i don't i don't pick one out to to watch it but it just seemed like to me first i just started noticing the, the some the dead leaves uh-huh uh, you know, on, on on different branches and and of course like i said that that bark falling down on the ground mm-hmm. uh, was was quite quite noticeable but then it just seemed like just the whole tree at once uh, was dead and, you know uh, never never was a great big growth of uh, foliage this year of
2: course right and it's it's hard to say and it's sometimes hard to determine after the fact but uh, I see this occasionally happen with a lightning strike and you know lightning comes in many different <laughs> intensities so to speak and I've seen trees that were literally turned to toothpicks on a really hot bolt that just vaporized the sap. I've had trees on my own property that were struck by lightning, and it blew the bark off one side of the trunk from way up in the top of the tree down very close to ground level. Uh, some of them recover, and some of them don't. And when you have something just in a very short period of time start taking a tree down like that, it's obviously not oak-willed. I doubt that it's, and of course, like you say, you've got a lot to keep up with. You don't watch your individual trees real, real carefully. I would, are are you here in the San Antonio area? Where are you located?
3: Yes, San Antonio.
2: Okay. If any of your, if any of your existing trees start showing what you would, uh, would think of as, you know, being a real problem, I would uh I would call a good arborist the name I or the man I think most highly of is a fellow named David Vaughn V A U G H A N and uh he's got he's been in the business his whole life he worked with uh, I think the best arborist in this area for many years and when he got to a certain age he said you know I don't have to work this hard so he started doing just consulting so he has no services to sell you other than a little bit of his time but he's the smartest guy I know when it comes to diagnosing problems. Now, it's hard to look at a plant that's already dead and say this is why it died. But when we look at a plant that's showing abnormal symptoms of one sort or another, somebody who knows what they're doing can many times determine the cause of the problem and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully take care of it. But I'm I'm leaning toward thinking something like a lightning strike that took out this one tree. But if the trees around it are looking good, if you have a bunch of oak trees all of their roots are interconnected in fact there are people who would tell you that you don't have twenty oak trees in your yard you have one oak tree with twenty trunks coming up so if this were a serious disease problem i would expect that we would be seeing it in the trees around that that have a common root system with it and that's what makes me think of it as more of a one time event that's taken this tree out but uh... Write down write down David's name. If you want to write down his phone number, I just pulled it up uh, here on my phone. It's a two ten area code, and the number is seven eight eight four nine eight six. And uh, he's got. I call if I think I'm having a tree problem. I call him. And of course. I usually get to say, David. Next time you go up to go fishing in my lake, which you do with some regularity, I want you to look at this tree. So you, you don't have that kind of uh, trading capacity that I do. But uh, he's very reasonable in his charges, and uh, and he he is a person that I trust, and that's saying a lot.
3: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I have one more question. If, if yes, I may. sir, go um, right ahead. Um, nematodes um, and do they migrate? I mean. Can, can you spray them on one one yard and they i mean a, a yard apart and they migrate that far or do you have well we 're right on we're, we're, each other
2: we 're talking about beneficial nematodes, of course, and there overall there are about six hundred thousand species of known nematodes out there, so uh, and okay, some of them are uh, very large, some of them are very small uh, they They move very slowly in fact, uh, the ones that we put out for beneficial purposes uh they they don't crawl, they swim, and I suspect that to move a hundred yards might take them a year or two to do it, and they're going to have to find plenty to eat along the way uh without uh, and and by eating uh basically they parasitize some insects and fire ants and things like that, and they could in a in a very pest filled environment. Uh, I guess they could spread. But what typically happens, and these are not things that aren't there to begin with. Uh, when we look, I think there's six species of nematodes uh, in the in the batches that we get from a company we use up in Colorado Springs. And these are all things that are already out in your yard. They're just not there in big numbers. And if you were to have, let's say, uh, fleas move in, fleas reproduce so quickly that you're, it's, it's, you know, like a platoon of infantry trying to take on a battalion. And so, what we do when we apply beneficial nematodes, we're merely increasing the numbers of uh, the nematodes exponentially. We're putting out a million nematodes where before there were 10, and that's why they're able to control the grubs and the fleas. And they will continue to exist in the soil as long as there are things for them to parasitize. But typically, they wipe out, you know, the fire ants, the fleas, the grub worms, and they've got nothing to live on, so they tend to die out after about 60 days or so. So it's a long answer to a short question. Yes, they they can spread, but um, it would be a very slow process, and... Uh, they're not going to be anywhere in just huge numbers. This is why, when I when I treat for fleas, I usually have to repeat it after about two years. So if you're in an area, and let's say you're after fleas, uh, the squirrels and the deer and the raccoons and all the other critters out there, they're going to periodically bring more of them in, and the day's going to come when you might have to apply them again. But um, as far as migrating out around the neighborhood, no, I would not expect them to do that.
3: Okay. That's very informative. I appreciate it, Bob.
2: Just just keep in mind that with like 600,000 different kinds, uh, which uh, infest plants, which infest animals, which uh, many of them we just really don't know what they do, we use the ones that tend to kill things like fleas and grub worms to our own advantage, but... uh, uh, a great question, but uh, it's it's one of those questions that, that there, there are a lot of questions out there that you have to answer with maybe. But then that's why I try to take the time to explain what's behind it so that you'll get a better understanding of it. Thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Dan, hang on just a second. Let's get a break uh, done here. And you're next in line. I get to talk about Dr. Mark Williamson. Again, what a great man i knew him uh, while dr staffel was still alive dr ed staffel was was one of the greatest dentists ever and he was bringing on somebody that he thought had more skills than anyone had ever met someone that would one day take over his practice and that's exactly what dr mark williamson has done this man has such a broad range of knowledge he can solve so many different dental problems he's just a total breed than the guys that are coming gals that are coming out of uh dental school these days they're teaching them you know if it's more than a filling or you know cleaning, Uh, why don't you send them off to a specialist. Well Dr. Williamson is a a dentist that doesn't need a specialist. He is the specialist and he can solve virtually every problem of oral health that you might have in a wonderful friendly environment. Just his staff, great, great, great people have known lots of them for years as well. And Dr. Williamson is one of these guys, it's not just your dentist, he's your friend. He wants to know you, he wants to know your family, He wants to be sure that everyone in your circle stays in the best oral health possible and that will typically add years to your life and lots of pleasure to your life as well. And major problems, yeah, take a little longer to solve, but he will tackle them and he will get them back under control. There's not going to be any any guilt if you put things off, if you've been too busy to go to the dentist. He's going to solve your problems, not criticize you for what you haven't done. It's a wonderful experience, Uh, (laughs) well, as as any experience going to the dentist can be, but you just Just need to go to see what I'm talking about. You'll find you've got a whole new set of friends and an extraordinarily capable group of people there. His office is over in northwest San Antonio, just outside Loop 410 on Cherry Ridge. And you can learn a whole lot more by giving them a call, 210-341-2569. That's 210-341-2569 for Dr. Williamson and Associates.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
2: All right, back to uh, back to gardening. Uh, my friend David Ball that I was just talking about, uh, just uh uh texted me that anybody who's looking for biochar uh, another neat guy out on Highway uh, 3351 um out at Burke at Arbor, Arbor Care Tyler out there has the uh, biochar that uh uh that we were talking about to try to mitigate to remediate uh some different problems with contamination in areas. So uh it's Burke B U R K E T T Arbor Care out there is one place you can get the the biochar in pretty good bags at a very good price. So anyway it uh let's see here. He said uh, telling me some other interesting things um i'll I'll read that study that more and give you more information on contamination right now uh uh, my don back in the station tells me that dan's the only guy on the line so if you've been getting a busy signal because they've been jammed up for the past hour or so that would be a good time to dial uh, 210-599-5555 and in the meantime i say good morning dan good morning bob appreciate my call i appreciate you calling uh, no problem what what I
7: was quizzing about last few days ago, I was putting out my cornmeal tea on my live oaks around here, and I got to thinking. I put dry cornmeal on my St. Augustine, my turf, and all occasionally for fungus. And I I put out something on the lawn every month: uh, Garrett juice, compost tea, uh, molasses, whatever. And would that be beneficial to put the cornmeal? Tea into my rotation just to periodically put out on the lawn
2: you're just you're putting out the same thing in a slightly different form and quite honestly we're we're looking at two different um, effects so to speak when we put the cornmeal tea out on the trees we're attempting mm-hmm. to create what we call systemic induced resistance and right. that is to get the uh, the trees. I I hate to use the word immune system, but let's call it the tree's defense system. We're trying to get that really activated. When we put the cornmeal on the lawn, we're going after the, uh, the trichoderma, which is what does the same thing with activating that defense system, but the trichoderma... Has a different way of controlling the fungus diseases that we get in the grass. It's more of a direct action, as I understand it, than it is uh, an, an acquired resistance thing. So, I I think you would be I think you'd be doing the same thing twice over. And if you have unlimited time and unlimited cornmeal, it's certainly not going to hurt anything. But uh, I think if if you're putting the dry on The grass, then uh, it'd be superfluous to go back with your liquid. uh, Spend your time caring for those trees. Does that make sense?
7: Sure. Now, is is the dry on the lawn better than putting it out as a liquid on the lawn?
2: It, um, I think it probably is longer lasting and probably okay. is a little more effective, but, uh, okay. um, I think either one of them is a good idea. But if your lawn, and again, if you've got three acres of ground, the liquid is certainly going to be much more cost effective. But if you've got, uh, a small to average size yard, shoot, I'd go ahead and, uh, um, put out the dry. The other reason that I don't recommend the the dry as much as we used to on trees out in the country is that you can bring in a few little other critters that we don't like as right. well, like feral hogs and uh things like that that'll just rip up the ground and I don't know, maybe it's good to aerate the soil, but uh um, hogs are one of the few things that I shoot on site. And so I sure. I'm certainly not gonna wanna do anything that's gonna encourage them to come around the landscape, but uh, in town, I'm not going to say it's not a problem because I have a friend out in Stone Oak that uh, has had hogs in the yard. I have another friend that had a mountain lion in the yard at times. So uh, we've got some we've got some wildlife in town, but uh, there's some of it I'd rather keep out in the country.
7: All right. Well, I appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much well you are goodbye. certainly welcome goodbye i certainly appreciate the call this morning uh tell you what i'm uh right up to uh uh time i need to take a break here so while you call me 210-599-5555 uh i will take a break here and tell you about uh green grow organics and sam Sitterly and all the services that sam provides so keep in mind that um He's he's not a full service maintenance company by any means. He's not the guy that's going to mow your yard or trim your trees, but he has a head full of knowledge that's been acquired from solving problems organically in our area for over thirty years now. His principal business is really as a consultant, as somebody who you know is there to help you. An awful lot of people just set up a a monthly visit or even a quarterly visit for him, where he can come out walk through your landscape very carefully with you and say hey this looks great this could do a little bit better this over here you really need to do such and such and some things he does himself compost tea application and some of the different fertilizing programs and all but uh... he's uh, he's not the guy that's going to do your yard work for you but this has been a year when we're seeing things we've never seen in the landscapes before between the drought and the heat and a lot of times if you just can't figure out what's going on that's where sam might be a big help to you uh, He. Like I say, he's been doing it for over thirty years. You need to go to his website, which is Green Grow spelled out G R O W GreenGrowOrganics.com. dot com. Take a look at the services. Take a look at the at the people in their high praise of him. If you decide it's right for you, give him a call. Set up a consultation and uh, be sure you understand any charges up front. But there are just an awful lot of people, a lot awful lot of our customers that uh, sing his praises very regularly. Uh, he is Sam Sitterly. His company is Green Grow
1: Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071.
2: All right, back to gardening on this beautiful Sunday morning out there. It looks like we've got Angie and E.T. and Mark waiting to call. Angie is up first. Good morning, Angie.
8: Good morning, Bob.
2: Good morning. I
8: I have a bay leaf tree that I've been babying in a pot. It's in about a three-gallon pot for about four years. Uh And I'm really gun-shy of putting it in the ground because you know the reasons why i don't want to lose it in a freeze <laughs> so <laughs> should i leave it there or should i take the plunge and put it in the ground so it can really flourish but i'm it'll well, freeze it,
2: it that's a tough question you know it's uh, uh there always is the chance that we will get an abnormally cold winter now um right. I, I had a baby leaf Bay tree on my property for probably 25 years. It got to be 25 feet tall and, you know, 10 feet wide. Uh, it froze back in the big freeze of 2020. It is coming back out. But it's just, you know, gardening is a gamble. I always say that agriculture is just legalized gambling with worse odds. So <laughs> yep. if it were mine, I probably would put it in the ground. And here's what I would do. And, uh, you know, 2020 kind of put some different ideas in my head and saw some, well, saw just a tremendous amount of damage on a lot of different plants. And we had, we had, and, you know, sort of said on citrus and on bay leaves and things like that on a really big one that it's just almost impossible to try to cover them up. But if we have that kind of weather forecast again, What I'm going to recommend to people is what we do with something like our Hong Kong Orchid Tree here at the nursery, and that is wrap the trunk. Don't worry if you can't protect the whole tree, because if you've got the lower four feet of the trunk protected, and even if we get that single digit or even below zero temperatures, uh, if you've got the trunk well wrapped and well protected, if the top of the tree freezes and dies, then it can come out from down below. And we'll still be the same plant, be the same genetics, whether it's a lemon tree, whether it's a bay tree, whether it's our Hong Kong orchid tree. And uh, it's frozen back to the main trunk several times in the 20 years or so that it's been out there in our parking lot. So I guess what I'm saying is I think the tree will be much easier to maintain in the ground. Um, The chances of a freeze that... uh, that is going to harm it significantly, they're out there, but they're in any given year, it's not real likely that we're going to have that kind of cold. Now, I have to say, since we're getting real close to fall, if this is just your special pet that <laughs> you want to take the best <laughs> care in the world of for, uh, keep it in the pot through this winter. But about next March yep. or so, go ahead and plant it out. That way it'll have a, a long time, probably at least uh, eight or ten months yeah. of warm I weather mean, to become... Yeah, to become established. And then when, whether it's a year or 30 years from now, that super hard freeze comes along, we'll be able to protect the trunk. And even if the top freezes, it'll come back out again.
8: That sounds like a good plan. Yeah, I just use it all the time for my cooking. So oh, yeah. I would just hate to, to lose it. But I will definitely – maybe yeah, I'll it, get a spare one just to keep <laughs> in a pot.
2: <laughs> That's you know, always – That's always a good idea. I figured at H-E-B prices at one time, I figured, well, I've probably got at least $100,000 worth of leaves on this bay tree. And I actually actually have a good friend that has a wonderful restaurant up in Bernie, and I would cut him, you know, big limbs and sprigs off of it. And he used to use them as table garnish in his restaurant because they're just so wonderfully aromatic as well as their great culinary uses. So um, worth protecting, but not worth fretting over. Thank you. And
8: my broccoli seedlings are very leggy. Is that the heat?
2: No, that's uh, that's not getting as much light as they want. All broccoli seedlings are going to be a little bit leggy, but they need to be where they're getting a whole lot of sun because sun breaks down the auxin that makes the cells stretch. And so sunlight is the one thing that keeps uh, seedlings from getting leggy. So get them where they get okay. uh, maximum sun possible.
8: Thank you, sir. I'm off to do it. Thank you so
2: much. Enjoy your day, Angie. All and you too. Bye. <laughs> goodbye. Next in line is E. T. Good morning, E. T. Morning, Bob. How are y'all today? Ah, doing very well. How about yourself?
9: Oh, I'm still kicking, but I think I got a pecan tree not doing so
2: good, though. Okay. What's it doing or not uh, doing?
9: Well. I think it's about 6 or 7 years old, and it'll go through the bottom of a bucket, you know, where I throw the seed in. And Uh 90% of the the leaves all turned brown, and 90% of them has fallen off.
2: Okay. Probably just drought, probably just because pecan trees, people think of them as being able to take anything. And when they get to be 300 years old and have the roots uh, extended to the next county— they can put up with this kind of drought, but I can tell you I've seen pecan trees in bad shape, pecan trees dying because they weren't getting the water they needed this summer. And with yours, it's a good thing that the leaves fell off. If a tree's leaves turn brown and stay on the tree, that tree's probably dead. If the tree leaves turn brown and fall off, that's the tree's mechanism of conserving water so that it doesn't just dehydrate itself to death. So. I would, I wouldn't give up on that tree. I would every time you think about it, E.T. I pick up your hose and just spray up and down the trunk, spray up and down the branches. Uh, you might mix up a, you know, big five-gallon bucket of Super Thrive and water, pour that over the root system of the tree. But and now we're starting to get at least uh, in scattered areas, we're starting to get some rainfall again, and I would not be at all surprised if that tree comes back out. But I'm not yeah. hearing anything that says d- disease or anything. I just think it's gotten a little dry, or a lot yeah, dry. I'm,
9: st- I'm still waiting for a rag. It's like only one one limb has leaves on it, and they're all brown and crunchy.
2: Yeah. Well, okay. I, I I check the base to be sure that the root flare is exposed, but start spraying down that entire tree every time you pick up the hose, even if it's two or three times a day. Uh let's look at it again in thirty days. I think you may very well have some new growth coming back out on it,
9: okay, otherwise is it good for too many of them
2: um it, it, they just don't get many diseases or other things so um i i i let's let's be hopeful at this point and uh and see what it does
9: okay I got a weird question here i come across i do some repair work and I come across some uh snakeskins. snake skins. You know, when they set your skin, uh, right. do they have any nutritional valves? I'll put them in a the flower pot, you know, add
2: it to a plant. <laughs> well, it's it's a proteinaceous material. In other words, it has protein. It has nitrogen in it. Uh, I don't think I, – I, I think if you made a fertilizer out of it, nobody would buy it. <laughs> but, uh, sure, it, you know, put it in the bottom of a hole when you're planting something. Throw it in a compost pile. Use it to to show your kids and grandkids to teach them a little bit about, uh, you know, about what snakes do and other reptiles do. But no, it's, uh, there very definitely would be some nutrient value to it. Uh, (laughs) I just, uh, I I know, I've been crawling around in caves and come face to face with uh, even rattlesnakes before. So it's not something you want to see them with the skin still on. Finding a shed skin is always interesting, though. Okay, great. And have you ever heard of this
9: so called lantern fly? It kind of looks like a moth and what they what I heard about it they said it's a bad, bad bug. It meant no good.
2: Mm, I don't know it by that name. You know, most moths, um in fact I guess all moths have a caterpillar as a larval state, uh and some of the caterpillars can be nasty, some of them can be stinging, they can, many of them can do a lot of economic damage, but uh, out of the 100,000 or so different kinds, I, that's one I've not encountered yet.
9: Yeah, well, they said it's kind of new, I don't know if it was our, our coast or in the Carolinas, but they uh-huh. were showing a picture of it, and they said it's, it's a, a, not a good bug.
2: So. Well, I, I, you know, that's one thing for sure, we're not going to do anything about it, hopefully, Hopefully, if it's something that came in from some, somewhere else, and you know everything out there, with the exception of some things right at the top of the food chain, has some sort of predator that, in wherever it came from, keeps it under control. The problem with these imported species that come in is that they don't bring along their control with them, and so they explode into populations that uh, uh, Mother Nature can't contend with, at least for lots of years. So. Let's just hope that some of whatever it is that preys on that particular one that we've got some of those around that ultimately we keep it under control, but uh not one that I've come across with i'll I'll keep my eyes and ears open
9: okay, Bob I well, thank you very much and uh if you know where I can find a uh, working rain rock, I'll appreciate it thank you.
2: i uh, you'll you'll be the second to know i'm going the first that's going to take advantage advantage of that e t so uh Anyway, get out and enjoy your Sunday, and uh, we'll do the same. Uh, time to, <coughs> excuse me, time to get another break in here, Don. I don't have any lives at this point, so run those recordings, and we'll get back to phone calls.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
2: All right, let's get back to phone calls. It's going to be Mark and Ralph and Margaret. Good morning, Mark morning bob how you doing off to a good start how about yourself
10: pretty good thank you i had a couple of questions um i bought a pedro walnut tree Uh uh-huh and i'm trying to see uh what your suggestions are on how to take care of it
2: basically just like you would a pecan tree very very closely related in fact uh pecan trees are frequently grafted onto a walnut rootstock and vice versa so um you're going to dig a hole uh, they they form it's not a true tap root but it's a tap root like structure so you're basically going to dig a fence post hole fill it with water make absolutely certain that all that water drains out within a few hours plant it uh don't plant it all the way down to the graft point plant it down to you know where the major roots start coming out and I, I don't know, I I'd kind of base it on what your soil is like. If you are in a soil that drains pretty quickly, I would just refill the hole um, with the same soil you took out of it. Years ago when I worked with a wonderful nurseryman up in Bernie named Alton Grimm, he, we had customers that were in a heavier clay soil and pecan trees and walnuts both. His recommendation was always dig that narrow, deep hole to plant the tree and then just backfill with 100% perlite just to be sure that you didn't get, you know, the situation where it's going to hold water, drive the oxygen out of the soil. I don't know that I would go quite that far these days, but as long as, as long as the soil drains, yeah, just backfill it with the same soil that you took out of the hole. If it doesn't drain well, then I might mix that soil like 50-50 with perlite or something like that to help improve the drainage. But, um, biggest enemy of a, of a young tree like that is going to be a water issue, either too wet or, which, of course, is not the water. It's the lack of oxygen that hurts it, you know, or getting too dry. Like all, pretty much all other trees, when you plant it, uh, if you can pick up the hose and just spray up and down the trunk, uh could be 10 times a day. That's going to help that tree get established faster than anything you can do. Realistically, I know very few people outside of a nursery have time to do that. But just remember not to water the base of the tree too frequently, but to wet down the bark in the trunk as often as possible.
10: Do you think I should fertilize or wait till next spring?
2: Oh no, I go ahead and fertilize. As long as you're using a good organic material, you can put a little dry in the bottom of the hole or you can go ahead and start watering with a good liquid. But uh no reason to wait. That tree, because of the nature of the root system, it probably had eighty percent of its roots pruned off when it was dug and, you know, offered for sale. So it needs some nutrient to get those roots reestablished.
10: Okay. And then my second question, um, I'm having a real hard time with uh, sedge in my garden, and I've heard you say to use molasses. Right. Um, and I think you had mentioned like a cup per gallon. Uh, Probably. I've been doing that, and, it, and it's like it's, it,
2: it's helping a little bit, but it's still kind of – Tough to pull from uh, from the from the ground. Yeah, it's um, and keep in mind that staying dry, which is hard to let your garden soil really get dry, dry, dry. But the drier it is, the better the molasses will work. that the thing to realize, and, you know, everybody wants to have a perfect garden, is that nutsedge really doesn't hurt anything. We've been taught that it's a bad thing to have. I guess if you grow them potatoes, occasionally I've seen one of those spears go through a potato, but I always remember old Malcolm Beck once told me that the uh, looking at a field of the healthiest corn he'd ever seen, he walked out into it and he said he was walking in a sea of nutsedge, so... Um, it's more of a cosmetic thing than the fact that it's really going to cause any problem to your plants. So, do what you can to control it. But uh, I mean, I'd take nutsedge over Bermuda grass any time. Oh yeah, I agree. Okay, all right then. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll do that, and um, and I appreciate your help. Well, I tell you, the one way, one bed, the only place I can say that I was ever really successful in a hundred percent eliminating nutsedge, and this was uh, a few years back in my life when I had a little bit more free time to do such things. But I put about four inches of mulch, and this was in a rose bed uh, where I had a nutsedge issue. And the nutsedge kind of migrated up through that mulch and it got to where I could go gently pull up one plant and I would get about 10 little plants attached to it and very diligently working at that for about six months, I totally eliminated nutsedge from that bed. Now, I envy you if you have the time to do that but this was a lot a lot a lot of years ago when i had more free time in my life and uh and i was able to control it but you know heavy mulching which can be a good thing in, in a vegetable garden um, uh, that will also make it a little bit easier for you to keep it under control and above yeah, all that part, I, I did i did notice that i was when i was pulling it uh i noticed that the part of the garden
10: that had more uh, mulch, um, that it did come up easier
2: than as opposed to the one that, you know, like the path that I would walk on. um, (laughs) Right. And you don't walk on it barefooted either because it is sharp. But above all, try to keep it from going to seed. I mean, if you've got a big area to work on, anywhere that it looks like it might be putting on a seed head, get rid of that. Because that seed head is just fifty new plants waiting to happen, and uh, uh, if you don't have time to do anything else except pull the ones that are trying to make seed, get rid of those first, and then go after the rest of them. And I, I know you don't uh, like chemical, but uh,
10: I mean it's it's really in, invaded the whole garden, and I'm I'm almost to the point of
2: just spraying some kind of chemical on it to try to get rid of it, and then well, just waiting for the garden for next spring. Well, unfortunately, the chemical will kill everything, and it may stay in the soil. The chemical that people use is either image or manage, and it can kill tree roots that are under the garden so uh I'd sooner put up with nuts edge than uh you know than, than do that. But you know, do what you gotta do and keep talking to me, and we'll let you know quickly if there's anything new comes along. okay, I appreciate you. thank you so much. I appreciate the call. You have a wonderful weekend and uh Let's see here. Yeah, we've got time to uh, at least get started with uh, Ralph. So good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Bob.
11: Good morning. Uh, I've got a couple
2: of questions. I think they're probably pretty quick ones. Is it too late to plant tomatoes? It's not too late to plant cherry, not too late to plant cherry tomatoes because cherry tomatoes do not pay much attention to the nighttime temperatures. And that's what we're not really worried about tomatoes freezing at this point. But if the nights start getting cool, and hopefully they will, your big fruited tomatoes uh, stop setting fruit as well. So I wouldn't hesitate to plant cherries. Big fruited tomatoes uh, just depends on. It's a gamble, and who knows with this crazy weather, we may have a really warm fall, and you would get something. And, you know, tomato plants are only going to cost you a couple of bucks. But I'd, I'd, I'd sooner see you plant cherries than big, fruited ones because I think you'll have a better chance of success. I think cherries would be just fine, so that's what I will try.
4: Uh, uh, also, I have a rock garden area with some shallow water ponds, and I have uh, cattails in pots in the uh-huh. water. Right. Uh, is there anything I can do to keep those over winter? I mean, I
2: don't care if the pots freeze, but will they come back from the root in the water? They, u- they usually will. And my best advice to you is if we're going to have um, a hard freeze like that, anywhere you can, since they're in pots, move the pots to deeper water. Try to submerge as much of the plant as possible because uh, your water's not, I don't think I've ever seen, even in our super cold winters, I don't think I've ever seen ice freeze more than half an inch thick at the most. And if you could just dump them down in deeper water, uh, then they're going to come back out for sure. That sounds great.
4: That should work. I also wanted to mention in the past, I've heard you mention powdered lime and powdered sulfur for cuttings. Uh-huh. And I've tried both, and they both seem very effective. They're just slow-acting.
2: Yep, they are. If really, if you find the actual mound, they will wipe it out over a couple of months. I'm glad that's been your experience. We'll talk more. I've got to go to
1: news right now. So, South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
2: And there are a couple of lines open. So if you are been getting a busy signal, dial quickly and you'll probably get through. Looks like we're going to talk to Margaret and Teresa, and Margaret is up first. Uh, Good morning, Margaret.
11: Morning, Bob. Good morning. Okay, um, first of all, I want to start with a conversation about uh, you and uh, James were talking yesterday morning about lettuce. Right, Uh uh-huh. First of all, what was the one you recommended? It was red something.
2: I like... I like red sails is a red leaf lettuce that I have found grows extremely easily. Uh, there's also a red oak leaf lettuce. Now he was talking about uh-huh. a red butter crunch, which is more of a head uh-huh. lettuce. And I've just never uh-huh. done real well with those, but, uh, uh, the red oak leaf and the red sails have both done very well in my garden with, uh, okay. with sometimes minimal care that things get around my right. house
11: exactly now can you buy seeds for those is that pretty readily available
2: you know i've i've always grown lettuce from seed uh he uh-huh. he has a little more time and he he likes putting them in uh these uh they're called root maker blocks and germinating them, and then going in and dividing those up and planting them but i've always uh-huh. grown them from seed so yes absolutely
11: okay. and i could find that at a Reputable Garden Place.
2: I would think you could find it at a reputable garden place. And, of course, we're very privileged to have uh, this company called David's Garden Seed. And oh, David's yeah. got, like, over a 1,000 different kinds of seed. And the the thing about, and, you know, we here at the nursery, we, we actually sell lettuce plants as well. And I tell people, mm-hmm. if you want to plant six different varieties of lettuce in a small garden, go ahead and buy the plants because buying a package with 200 mm-hmm. seeds in it doesn't make sense unless you want to grow a no. big batch of one kind mm-hmm. of lettuce. So, um, on the other hand, the seed's not expensive, and if you... Put it in a mason jar. Keep it in the refrigerator. It will keep for several years. But uh, mm-hmm. do that, that's that's one that's one thing that David has done so well. He's put put a lot of different varieties of seed into smaller packages, so they're very mm-hmm. inexpensive, and you're not buying a lot of stuff you you don't need. Now, of course, you right. may have a gardening circle of friends that uh, you can share your seed <laughs> with, and that's that's the most fun of all. But uh, yeah, um, I, it doesn't happen very often, unfortunately.
11: Okay. Um, And then what about protection? Because I've grown lettuces, but it seems like I got them in January, February. Um, Would I have to protect them if I plant the seed and get
2: the... Uh, plant up and growing now? Uh, another another great question. When the seed first comes up, it's not very cold hardy because it hasn't had time to build up the sugar content in the sap, which is what makes it more cold hardy. So, If okay. you were to plant it and we were to have a frost predicted two weeks later, yes, I would probably cover it. If it's up mm-hmm. and growing actively, it normally doesn't need any protection unless we're going to get way wow. down to the low 20s or something like that. Lettuce is pretty okay. hardy. now. A freeze like, you know, the freeze gone of 2020. Oh, sure. Snowmageddon. <laughs> yeah, snowmageddon. Um, uh, yeah, you better have some uh, plenty of protection then, but mm-hmm. rarely, rarely does uh, lettuce need protection. Now, the further up in the hill country you get, the more hard freezes you have, but San Antonio, most years, if you give your plants, if you plant them early enough to give them some time to harden off, you'll probably go all mm-hmm. winter without having to protect them.
11: Okay, very good. All right, uh next question, tomatoes. Uh three weeks ago I planted some uh plants. Um they were probably twelve inches in height. Uh-huh. And two I I got celebrity, they look good. I got uh two big beefs. My uh-huh. big beefs, like a third top of the plant, wilted, and now the the uh branches are brown and looking very yucky just the top part um hmm. is that is that a root thing now i have i have a in whiskey i mean uh, molasses tubs and uh-huh. i supplemented the soil a little bit with vegetable mix soil and just a little bit of compost mixed it up real good uh-huh. and planted in that which i do every year but let's see i have a a red grape It looks fine Sun gold is kind of eh, am, but the big beefs for, for sure. The top part um, is just wilted, and now it doesn't look like the virus wilt because I've had that
2: before. Yeah, yeah. So, I I I would. Uh, it's hard to say, but typically, if you've got a root problem, the whole plant's impacted at once. If you had fusarium or verticillium, some of the rots yeah. that tomatoes get, um, it wouldn't be showing in just a part of the plant the whole plant would have just collapsed on you all at one time so kind of unusual mm-hmm. and the nature of tomatoes you know they can branch heavily from the base if it doesn't seem to be spreading I would just ignore it it may be something that the tomatoes perk up from um, a lot of times tomatoes have come from a very very controlled environment at the at the growers and we stick them out in the yard and they You know, they all of a sudden they say, "What do you mean sticking me out in this broiling (laughs) sun and all these temperatures?" And in that case, the top of the plant's going to show the symptoms while the bottom of the plant doesn't. And the plants typically recover. Realize they're not going. It's not going to okay. get any better, and they're just going to have to tough it out. So at this point, I just you know give it the normal good care. If you want to mix up a little super thrive, maybe throw in a little bit of liquid yeah. seaweed, and just mist okay. the top of those plants. Go ahead, and spray everything out there. They're all going to benefit from it. But um, I I suspect that it is more weather related. It does not sound like insect or disease related to me.
11: And I I am real careful with my water and i make sure that they have good drainage that that yeah. doesn't seem to be an issue so i don't know but just the top is wilted brown and the bottom part isn't looking very healthy it's kind of yellowing but
2: i eh, yeah I, mean, I, I just want to pull I, them up
12: and
11: plant no, fresh but i didn't want to plant I, fresh if i, I have a problem with my soil
2: well i doubt that it's a problem with your soil and a big beef i think you're too late to plant fresh on oh, that yeah. one so um, oh, focus yeah. on your celebrities and focus on your cherries. and uh, um, You should still get some good tomatoes. Like I say, it doesn't sound like a disease, so I'm not going to be ripping them out of the ground. I'm going to give them a chance, but um, okay. just a little foliar spray with some Super Thrive, some garret juice. If there's anything that's going to bring them out of it, that will. Okay. It may just, there's no other way to put it. They may just have been wimpy plants to start with.
11: Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm afraid of. Okay, one last question. Um, Persian lime. I bought it this spring at Fanix, and it's probably mm-hmm. four-foot tall. It did produce, or it has like eight limes on it. Good. Um, should, do I need to re- think about repotting that into something bigger? It's a five-gallon nah. container? No.
2: No, I, okay. the only time to repot is if that plant's drying out so fast that you can't keep it adequately watered. Uh, the worst mistake that people make, and they do this with houseplants, they do it with fruit trees, they do it with a lot of different things, is they're in a big rush to repot. And most <laughs> plants are actually much happier if they're root-bound, especially houseplants of all oh, sorts. Yeah. Now. Oh, now, yes. shade trees, that's a different story. We don't want to see them get root bound because of the potential for long term root girdling. But don't mm-hmm. be in a rush. To me, the only two times to repot are when a plant is so top heavy that you can't keep it standing up or when mm-hmm. you've gotten to where you have to water it three times a day. Other than that, mm-hmm. you know, let it stay where it is. Persian lime, that's another one you can put in the ground if you're prepared to cover or at least wrap the trunk Mm -hmm. if it gets real cold. And unlike the Mexican limes, which can bloom and produce any time, your Persian lime is going to behave much more like other citrus. It's going to put on a crop of blooms and set fruit in the early spring, and then you're going to get your limes in the fall. So uh, it's a great thing to have in the garden. But uh, Mm -hmm. I personally would supplement it with the Mexican lime too, just so that if I just happen to need some lime juice for whatever (laughs) beverage I'm preparing, uh, it's a lot more fun to go out and pick your own. And there's going to be a portion of the year that Persian lime is not going to have any juice to offer you.
11: Yes, definitely going to play that, do that. So, okay. Well, thank you so much for your help. I appreciate it.
2: Always a pleasure. Keep me posted on how those tomatoes do. I will. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye Bye. Goodbye. Ah, Don, I guess we better get a break done. I'm through with live, so run the recorded. and We'll make Teresa first
1: and keep going. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
2: All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Teresa and Maria and
1: James. Teresa
2: is up first. Good morning, Teresa.
13: Good morning, Bob. This is Teresa. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing extremely well.
13: Good. I spoke to you maybe three weeks ago about some white bugs that had infested all my hibiscus plants. Right. You told me to get some spinosad. Well, I might have gotten spinosad and sprayed them and all, but maybe I got to them late
6: because
13: Uh they, one of them has already died and two of them are about to. So my question is, Can I still use the same pot with the same soil for future plants, hibiscus plants or any other type of plant?
2: I would not hesitate to, but I wouldn't give up on your hibiscus because these mealybugs, and I've seen about 10 samples of mealybugs on both hibiscus and altheas this week, and um, uh, they've just been really bad in a lot of cases, though, uh, a lot of people think they're still on there and what they're looking is dead mealy bugs because dead mealy bugs look a lot like live mealy bugs. I would yeah. give your hibiscus some super thrive. I would uh, watch your watering, but I would be sure that you're not letting them get too dry. And most of the hibiscus and the altheas that I've looked at, uh, after they were sprayed a couple of times, have started to come back out again. So... Um, i be be real circumspect about throwing them out because they hibiscus can look pretty bad and they can still come back out very strong. So, and okay. uh, it's again, I, I hope you got spinosad soap. It's for in yeah. my experience has been uh, a lot more effective than spinosad. But okay. I don't know what it is with mealy bugs, especially on uh, on hibiscus. I've never seen the problems that we're seeing this summer. I'm hoping that as we get into cooler weather and back to a little bit more normal rainfall, the uh, there's a there's a fun little insect called a cryptolemus that actually kills mealybugs. I hope our cryptolemus will get their act together and start t- knocking them okay. out before we even have to deal with them. But um, okay. don't don't give up on things. So use some super thrive. Watch your watering carefully, and even cut them back slightly if you need to. But uh, um, I, I, I think the majority of your plants are going to come back, and okay. no, I probably uh, and I probably would, you know, spray the surface of the soil in those pots. But I would not hesitate to reuse that soil. They don't leave uh, okay. eggs behind or anything like that.
13: Okay, very good to know. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Althea because I've got four althea trees
2: mm-hmm. that
13: are doing pretty good. Should I? spray some spinosad soap on them just in case
2: i would i would i would not do it in the heat of the day i would do it morning or evening but uh i've seen i've seen more on altheas than i have actually on tropical hibiscus so uh i think a little proactive uh proactive spraying would probably be a good idea there
8: okay well
13: thank you so much again for all you do and for helping me out
2: well, thank you for calling periodically whenever I can help. And, you know, don't just spray everything because there are beneficials out there that we certainly don't want to kill. But considering the problem we've seen on is, uh I would, I don't know that I'd spray, I wouldn't try to just coat the whole plant, but out there on the tips of the branches, which is where okay. I see, I'm seeing by far the most mealybug problem, I think a little okay. bit of, uh, of, spray there would be a good idea and the other thing is be sure that you don't have ants around and there's so many fire ants are going to be even more after these little rains because ants actually farm mealybugs Uh, a lot of these mealybugs don't hatch on the plant there will be an ant that takes that baby mealybug and takes it up and in effect plants it on the plant because the ant wants to go back and feed on this sugary excrement that the mealybugs leave behind so oh, a lot of the places where I see the worst mealybug problems are where people have, you know, lots of ants, especially fire ants, that are hauling the little babies around and putting them on their plants. And so if you keep your ants under control, chances are you will always have less of a problem with mealybugs.
5: Okay.
13: All right. One last question. I have well, we planted several pepper plants. Uh-huh. In the garden along with tomatoes, and our garden this year was just no garden. Mine, too. I do, okay. The ones that we did plant on the pots, some of them gave us peppers, and some of them didn't. Well, with all this rain we've been getting, the pepper plants are looking beautiful. Yeah. Full green, everything. Do you think we'll be getting any peppers this fall?
2: Yes, I do think you will be, and I think if okay. you'll – give them a little has to grow or some good uh, liquid fertilizer, you'll you'll have a very good pepper crop this fall. I I think you're going to have at least, I think a lot of people are going to have a much better fall garden than they did spring garden. And uh, okay. I'm her, certainly hoping that you and I will be among those people we can speak of that way.
13: <laughs> very, very good, Bob. Well, again, thank you so much, and God bless you.
2: Thank you so much. You as well, Teresa. Always good to hear from you. Let's see here. Let's go and take one more phone call before we, uh, before we take a break here. And that would be James. I'm sorry, that would be Maria, I believe. Uh, Is that where we are? Yeah, I believe we're up to Maria. Good morning, Maria. Hi, Bob. Hi there.
8: That Uh is growing vigorously. It's
2: blooming, but the blooms are green.
8: They're not coloring up. What's the problem?
2: Probably needs a little more sun. Part of it is the heat because many of the pigments uh, express themselves best when we have a little bit cooler temperatures. But uh, in general, I, I think it's going to be combination of heat and probably they would like a little more light. The fact that they're blooming indicates that they're doing pretty well. But uh, sometimes that just that just happens in the summer when the temperatures are high. But if you give them a little bit more light, I think it will help. And I think that when our nighttime temperatures start dropping a little bit, you're going to see a lot more color in your crown of thorns.
8: Okay. So it's not nutrient deficient in some
2: way. No, no. It's just a lot of the, the class of pigments – that uh, color the flowers and a lot of different euphorbias, including crown of thorns, they are very very much more brilliantly colored as the uh, as the nighttime temperatures drop a little bit. Now you obviously have learned uh, you don 't treat kind of crown of thorns like cacti; you treat them like a house plant, you water them thoroughly when they are dry on the surface, so you 've obviously got your culture down very well. Now, I think with little patience, you're going to start benefiting from the flowers. Because crown-of-thorns, if you don't let them get too dry, they can bloom almost year-round for you. Okay. Well, thank you. You are certainly welcome. Let me ask you one more thing. Is this a giant crown-of-thorns, or is this yeah. a little more compact yeah. one? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they are... They are much more prone to uh, that greenish color in the blooms, but give them a little bit of time, a little bit cooler weather, and like I say, keep them in real bright sunlight. You're going to get some beautiful blooms this fall. Okie doke. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, Don, let's go ahead and run this break so that uh, we don't get behind, and we'll make James first when we come back. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be James and Nancy, and James is up first. Good morning, James.
12: Good morning, Bob. I'm glad I got in. I've got three questions for you, if I could. I'll try to make yes, them sir. quick. Okay. Okay, this spring, this spring, like most everybody else I've heard, uh, tomatoes were pretty much a no-go. Um, mine, I only had two tomatoes in the spring, an early girl and that STM 2255 or whatever it is. They both... Uh, In containers like 17 gallon containers individually, Uh Um, the Early Girl was fine, but the uh, the other tomato, 90 percent or better had um, blossom end rot on them. Right, right. And they got the same care and the same water, so I don't think that was an issue. So uh, about a week ago, I I picked up a Celebrity. I put it in the same container. Um, I didn't add any Epsom salt. I wanted to talk to you first. And is, would you do that? And is it too was, late once I planted
2: it, or no, what would you recommend? No, I, it's it's absolutely uh, not too late to do that. It's never too late to do that. But the difference is, uh, once the things are already in the in the garden, in the pot, whatever, and growing, I would do your Epsom salts in a liquid form. Put about two tablespoons, uh, two to three tablespoons of Epsom salts in a gallon of water. You let it dissolve okay. as best it will, and then just water, water all your tomatoes with it. Uh, uh, you're never going to uh-huh. overdo it. Yeah, Blossom rot is not a disease. It's when your calcium and magnesium get out of uh, balance in the soil. Then uh, that's when you get this. It's a physiological condition, and, of course, you can slice the bottom off and the rest of the tomatoes totally good. It's not not disease related or a rot or anything like that. So you just get the calcium magnesium back in balance and the problem goes away. And uh, Epsom salts of course magnesium sulfate. So uh, um, that's the best way to go. Just if I was doing it before I planted I, or when I first plant I just sprinkle it all around the soil. But in, in a pot that I already know has things out of balance I'm going to do it with a liquid because it's going to operate that much faster.
12: Okay, what's interesting is I don't remember which pot um, I had the problem with, <laughs> and then I replanted it. But, okay, three tablespoons
2: per gallon, and I can't do it too frequently is what you're saying. Oh, you only Maybe need to do it once. No, you oh, probably do- only need to do it once. <laughs> but do all oh, your pots nine. whether all your pots, whether you know you've had a problem or not. Okay, I'm glad I asked because I, I misinterpreted
12: what you said. Okay, one time then, one good yeah. soaking with that. Okay, chili pekin, I got in a container. Um, I guess because of the heat, the plant looks good, but I'm having to water it twice a day. I think it's root-bound. It's uh-huh. really starting to bloom now really well, uh, I guess because it's cooled off a little bit. I want to okay. plant it in the ground. Would you do it this fall or wait till next
2: spring? Oh, i planted okay, plant it this fall. i I plant it this fall. The sooner the better. Um, sooner the better. Okay. The sooner the better. I, if you can, uh, well, if we should have a really hard wetter I would cover it if it gets super cold, but I have chili pekines that uh, literally, they're kind of all over one portion of my... I've got a small yard and a big yard. (laughs) The bigger yard's a couple of acres. The smaller yard's much smaller, but in that bigger area, I've got chili pekines come up all over the place. Now, beyond my fences, the deer and the cattle tend to eat them down. But uh they've come back even after this super hard winter. Took a while but uh they came back. So once you get this oh. guy really established and growing, uh you're probably gonna have chili beans for the rest of your life. Okay. So once I put it in the ground
12: and I use um has to grow generally and I got some growing green, um just put some growing grain around it or would you wait until the um to springtime? Um, to fertilize
2: it. once I. No, Uh, I definitely would fertilize it. I tend to think on newly planted things. uh, Probably your has to grow is faster acting. Uh, I tend, in my garden and places, I tend to do both. I use some of the growing green or fertilizer like it. Medina actually makes a special one for us. It's just an improved growing green. But I'll sprinkle it out, but then when I plant, I'll follow it up with the liquid has to grow plant. Not has to grow long, but has to grow plant. Because I think it acts... It's all fertilizers have to be processed by microbes in the soil, and uh, it just happens a lot faster with a liquid product than it does uh, with a granular product. Okay,
12: one last one real quick. I got a blue plumbago
2: also in a container, patio plant.
12: It was on the west side. It got scorched really bad. I guess I didn't water it a day or two. Yep. It looks really bad. I almost gave up on it, but it's trying to leaf out. Um, my wife told me to cut it back. I was reluctant to do that. Um Uh, Would you cut it back
2: now or just let it go and see what it does? Um, I would never never take all the foliage off of it. Uh, You can cut it back, removing up to as much as 30% of the foliage. You can cut it back and remove about a third of the foliage, and it'll look a lot nicer, and it probably will actually stimulate new growth. But don't cut it back so frequently that you take the majority of the leaves off because that plant needs... Uh, at least a pretty good set of leaves just to be able to photosynthesize and continue making all the things that it's going to let it grow and ultimately bloom again for you. So I, I probably would do some cosmetic trimming. Just be sure you're not taking too high a percentage of the green off of it at any one point. Well, it hardly has any green on it at all except for where it's trying to releaf out. Yeah, it's pretty much bare. Yeah. Then Then put your shears away until you get some leaves on it and then go back in and do your tidy up. Okay. All right. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the call and the good questions. I appreciate it, James. Uh Thank you. Bye. Uh Goodbye. Ah, looks like we have time to talk to Nancy before we take a break. Good morning, Nancy.
14: Good morning, Bob. Thank you for taking my call.
2: Thank you for calling.
14: I have a question about rabbits. How do I keep rabbits away from my plants? They're eating my plants.
2: Get a big dog.
14: <laughs> oh, well, I have two little dogs, but they won't do anything.
2: <laughs> right. Probably the rabbits are probably bigger than the dogs. Now, the only way to keep rabbits away really is with uh, is just, in effect, fence them out. Now, rabbits don't climb fences, and they don't usually have the sense to try to jump over a fence. You can normally you know, stop them with uh, just chicken wire, maybe two feet high. Uh, you'll have to inspect it periodically because occasionally they're smart enough to dig underneath it. But um, I'm I, I, the other option would be to get some really, really, really hot pepper juice. And there are a couple of them you can actually buy now. A friend of mine was telling me about one that... Uh, I mean, it's so hot that you just, you almost, you have to wear gloves and just be real careful with it. But anything with a really, really hot pepper, you can spray it on the foliage of plants, and rabbits very definitely will not go after it, nor will even the deer. But uh, rabbits are, at least in my garden, I've got, you know, higher fence to keep out the deer and the cows. But I just went around, I had a rabbit issue several years ago, and I just went around with uh, chicken wire about two feet tall and just went around and, Put that up against the other down at the base, and I never saw another rabbit in the garden.
14: Okay, I will have to try that. Uh, also, I purchased. Okay, one of the things one of the plants that they that they ate was a crape myrtle tree that I had just planted. It was kind of small. They uh-huh. ate that. They also ate uh, part of a uh, a small uh, rose bush that I also planted. And a uh, crepe myrtle. When's a good time to plant it? Because I have another one in my backyard that are having a pot that is perfectly beautiful but but the one in the front they ate but when's a good time to plant a crepe myrtle tree
2: about three years ago the second best time is (laughs) the second best time is today fall is actually most all of our our permanent landscape plants trees and shrubs crepe myrtles things like that fall is a single best time of the year to plant so if you already have it go ahead and plant it if you uh you know if it's something you're going to go out and buy probably wait and do it about the 1st of October but if you have it I would uh I I'd be getting it in the ground this afternoon if you can
14: okay uh so do I use compost or anything do I use anything special you know to make you know keep it healthy
2: I I don't tend to add compost to the soil. I'll put the you know same soil I took out of the hole, but then I'll put a layer of compost on top of the soil. In fact, I like putting down a little bit of dry fertilizer, putting a little bit of compost on top of that, and uh, your crepe myrtle should do extremely well for you. Just remember that its roots are only as big as a container that it was growing in, so probably going to have to water it reasonably frequently at first, but... Uh, uh, no reason to wait. The sooner you get it planted, the sooner it gets started growing roots.
14: Oh, good. Okay. Okay. So I will try the hot. I'll try the hot pepper juice and uh, maybe the chicken wire.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, That's uh, what I would much, do, Bob. Hey, you are certainly welcome. I hope you have a wonderful out. Sunday. Well, thank you. you I appreciate too. it. Bye. Goodbye. Okay, Don. Well, let's get our last break of the show done. We'll come back and we'll make Tony first. <laughs>
15: We go out on a date. I thought we'd fire the old boat up and spend the weekend out on the lake. We take the fishing poles and hit the
2: Oh, Don, that's uh, I sure I would have remembered that one if we'd done it before. <laughs> that that's moving up pretty high on my list of some of the best ones you've ever brought us. But uh, you know, Mr. Don Cooper Stevens doing the engineering in this show when we do a get a fishing song or at least an outdoor song for the last break of the show. You can also hear Don's uh, fine work when you listen to Jack Riccardi. But I don't think Jack, uh, ex, uh, it, it, you know, it feels quite as strongly about fishing as uh, Don and I do. But that. That's uh, puts a big smile on my face, Don, and I certainly do thank you. All right, uh, taking a look at the uh, lineup, it looks like it's Tony, John, and Judy. We better get started, and Tony's up first. Good morning, Tony.
9: Hey, good morning. That was an appropriate song. I live down in Aransas Pass, so we do some fishing down here.
2: <laughs> I guess so. That that you know, Don is just, I think that man knows every song that has ever been recorded, and he, he comes up with some fun stuff. There's just no such thing as too many smiles, and that's a, that's a good one on a Sunday morning. So how can I help you yeah, today? It, it did make me smile. Hey, I, uh, down here in
9: Aransas Pass, uh, past two weeks, we received seven inches of rain at my house yes sir and so we have mosquitoes and two weekends ago you were speaking with dr garrett about some type of mosquito control
2: well calling about that. yeah um howard was talking about a way to in effect prevent as many mosquitoes and what he does and he lives in kind of a uh, very an area with lots of bamboo, lots of thick vegetation, kind of an ideal place for mosquitoes near White Rock Lake in Dallas. And they got eight inches uh-huh. of rain this week, so we'll we'll see how his procedure works. And uh, but. He was taking uh buckets, uh, in this case black buckets, but he was filling them with water and, uh you know, putting a little bit of hay or whatever else in them to create that really nasty water that uh, mosquitoes really like. And then he was adding a little bit of uh, this bacteria we call BTI. It's usually sold as either mosquito dunks or mosquito bits, uh, and it doesn't harm people or pets or anything else, but it's very effective in controlling mosquito larvae. And what he felt like on his property is that the mosquitoes were going to lay their eggs and uh, his little collection of buckets, and consequently they were all dying before they ever turned into adult mosquitoes. So that would probably be a help, but considering the mosquitoes fly up to a mile, you probably are, are going to want to do a little bit more. Now, if you have anywhere that you know that water stands uh, after a big rain. Uh, again the mosquito bits, mosquito dunks are relatively inexpensive and you can just you know toss them in there for up to six weeks and they can dry up and then get wet again, dry up and get wet again. Uh-huh. Uh, but they are very effective at, at killing the mosquito larvae. Now th- there are several things that we have found that do a pretty good job of repelling adult mosquitoes. Um, one is liquid garlic and a good nurse who will have that under the name of either garlic barrier or mosquito barrier. You spray, and it's probably going to give you at least uh, eight, ten hours of no mosquitoes. Great if you're spending an evening out or having a party or something. You can also use orange oil, uh, pre-dilute, maybe a teaspoon per gallon, same way, sprayed around. Cedar oil is especially effective against the mosquitoes. It also controls chiggers in the lawn pretty well. But... Um, mm-hmm. Those will all do. There's one other product that I really like and it is called the uh, Dr. T's. T is in Tom Dr. T's Mosquito Control. And it is a granular material about the consistency of kitty litter and you simply sprinkle it around an outdoor area if you have a porch or patio or somewhere you like sitting in the evening, and it will last for up to six weeks. And it uh, has a little garlicky smell when you first put it out, and then you stop smelling it, but the mosquitoes still do. And that really cuts down on having them come around. Finally, there is a, uh, a candle put out by a company called Amazon Lights, and it's based on something called Andoroba. And if I'm sitting out and the mosquitoes are around, sometimes I'll just light one or two of these candles, uh, you know, around where I'm sitting, and it does a pretty good job of repelling the mosquitoes. So those are all different things you can do. That's that's one of the negatives of living where you do is that when you get rain, you get mosquitoes. But all these things, I'm sure, would yeah. help.
9: Yeah, so the, the orange oil on, the gra- on my lawn, it won't hurt that
2: if I dilute no. it? No. No, see. dilute it down teaspoon per gallon. It's not going to hurt a thing. In fact, it actually shows some benefit at a very dilute rate like oh, okay. that. Okay. I think I'll do the orange
9: oil for immediate and then come back if I can find Dr. T's. Where do they sell Dr.
2: T's? Um, I don't know in your area, but any good nursery should carry it. If they don't, you may go online and find it or if you come to San Antonio, okay. swing by, and say hello.
9: Okay. I, I was there like a week ago, but you weren't there. And, um <laughs> Uh, I'm a bit disappointed, I, but now I know uh, you're not there all the time.
2: So. Well, <laughs> I, at Tuesdays and Thursdays, I usually work at my ranch, or I might be out buying plants or whatever. But uh, uh-huh. you go out, get back out on that bay. You've got about four or five days left before the CCA Star Tournament ends, and I'd love you to be the guy that got one of those boat motor trailer packages down there. So uh, get out and enjoy. I know. <laughs> I will. Thank you, Bob, so much. You're, my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, let's get John on next. Good morning, John. Good morning, Good morning, sir.
0: Hey, I have a question regarding nut sedge. I have a raised garden that has been just absolutely overtaken with the nut grass. I have uh-huh. sprayed it with vinegar and orange oil four times about every two weeks. Yeah, and it kills it initially or kills the tops of it, but within and it comes right back. Yeah, and I've even covered it with tarp, and it's coming up under the tarp.
2: Well, and it pokes holes. It'll poke holes in the tarp. Uh, I guess one thing to realize that the nutsedge is not hurting your your vegetable garden. We don't like it. I guess with potatoes, it can cause some damage, but uh, it's not going to really harm tomatoes or peppers or squash or things like that. So. Uh, it's not something that you absolutely have to totally eliminate. Now, the best way that we have found, other than solarizing in the middle of the summer, and it's too late to do it this fall, but it does not like the combination of drier soil and molasses, either liquid or dry. Uh, typically, if you will mix up your molasses, about half a cup of molasses to a gallon of water, and use that to soak the area around where you have the nut's edge. It rots it. it. It creates so much microbial activity that it just literally causes the nut's edge to rot. It works best if you can keep it pretty dry. So it's probably not something you're going to do while you have things actively growing in that raised bed. But uh, the the molasses does a better job of actually eliminating it than the and orange oil ever will. Like you say, it burns the top off of it, but it just sprouts right back out from that nut. So I'd go with some molasses, and uh, then maybe next summer, July, August, uh, keep at least a portion of it uh, without planting it and solarize it, because that's the only thing that's really, really guaranteed to get rid of it.
0: Yeah, th- there is no room to plant I mean, it yeah. is so, it's like carpet grass in
2: the in the garden. Yeah. Uh, again, the only way that I ever really totally eliminated from a bed one time is I put about three inches of mulch on top of the area where the nutsedge was, and it's like the it just kind of migrated up through the mulch, and I could very carefully reach down, and I would lift up on one little plant, and it would pull up about 10 or 12 plants around it. Now, it took me six months to do it, but um, that's, that's the only time that I can say that I totally eliminated it from a bed. But uh, um, in between crops, you know, you can double dig it. You can. Uh, our guys around here have taken to sifting the soil as it went back into the bed and got out literally hundreds of the little bulbs in an area that we're trying to control it here at the nursery. But uh, it's, it's an issue, and the chemicals that they make to control it are definitely not safe for a vegetable garden
0: stuff like sedge hammer or image or something like that it's not yeah
2: image manage sedge hammer um, you can use it on your lawn if you want but it's hard on tree roots and lots of other things so uh, uh, sometimes the cure is worse than the problem Roger that
0: well I appreciate it thanks so much have a great weekend
2: you do the same thank you Judy we're uh-huh. short on time thank you but uh, we're short on time but uh, let's try to answer your questions as quickly as we can
11: okay um I've got a chop top, a country, and a Myers lemon. On the country, we planted it in February. That's when I got it for Valentine's Day. And does it matter if the St. Augustine grass is up to the trunk when
2: it at doesn't all? doesn't bother the the trunk? Just be sure that a helpful husband or friend with a weed eater doesn't get up and whip all the bark off oh. the tree. Uh, but oh, no, having that—that's <laughs> what they all say. It, uh, but no, it's not going to the little bit of water, the little bit of nutrient that it takes is not going to uh, interfere with those trees at all. You should have the okay. root flare exposed, and I like having some mulch not up against the trunk, but out over the area. But uh, the presence of St. Augustine around it's going to make it look pretty. But uh, just be real sure that nobody nobody gets carried away with the okay. line trimmer.
11: Yeah, the root flare is not exposed. It's kind of hard to pull back that grass. So well,
2: you get, that's I one thing you're going to need problem. to do. Yeah, you're going to need to pull oh, the grass gosh. back and uh, so dig I, down until mm. you find the root flare. Then a little bit of grass around it is not going to be an issue. Okay. But you don't want that trunk without air movement.